Hello and welcome to the world of sport from you as a teenager, hosted by Daniel Middlebrook. And today I am so excited to be bringing you probably the biggest episode yet. In this episode, I'll be talking about the NBA playoffs, Damian Lillard, who's been playing incredibly, um, the Criterium de Dauphiné, which was last week, as of when this will be released, um, Primoz Roglic, Wout van Aert, uh, Julian Mata, Chris Froome, Egan Bernal, and Young Riders, and what are they doing right and wrong? And not to mention, I'm taking my picks for each jersey in the Tour de France. I'm going to uh, outline who my outsider is for the Tour de France win. And I'm going to be talking about my dream team for this year's Tour de France. It's going to be a very exciting episode. And please do stick around until the end. And plus, follow me on Twitter. I'll see you back after a short break. After a short break, I am back. And I am booming to talk to you about Damien Lillard. But before that... Um, I changed up the interlude, the um, section that um, ties in uh, audio sections together. Um, tell me if you like it on uh, Twitter or, or on maybe, I think there's a comment section on the actual Anchor website to um, my podcast. I think I might try and put that in the, in the description. I might do. Um, what's it called? But uh, let me know what you think of that or would you like me to go back to my old one? Do let me know. Um, anyway, let's hop in and talk about Damian Lillard. In my opinion, in my, this is just my opinion, um, don't take this too seriously because I'm no expert, this is just what my eyes are telling me. In my opinion, right now, as of today, Damian Lillard is the best player in the NBA. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. It's not LeBron. It's not LeBron. Kawhi Hardy plays... Paul George has been good, not incredible. Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard has been putting up 60, 50, 40, 30 points consistently in the bubble. He's averaging 37.6 in the bubble. (laughs) Do you know how hard that is to do? He shoots threes pretty much better than anybody in this league. He's not a great defender. But he carried this Portland team to the 8th seed when I didn't really expect them to make it there. He's played absolutely fantastic basketball. He's got averaging two more points um, than James Harden, who's normally considered the best scorer in the league. But Damian Lillard has carried this Portland team to the playoffs, and I'll give my picks for each round of the playoffs very soon. But all I'm going to say is that Lillard has been great. He's played like flipping MJ. And Portland is streaking. What's it called? They are playing absolutely fantastic basketball. Nurkic is playing well. McCollum's playing good. You know, Nurkic had 21 rebounds against the Grizzlies. 21 rebounds, as well as 20 points and 6 assists. Damien only put up 31 points. It's crazy that we have to say only, because he's that great. But he also had 10 assists and a couple of rebounds and a steal. But um, and only one turnover, considering he was double teamed for most of the game. That's great. CJ McCollum had 14 points in the fourth quarter, I'm pretty sure. He turned it on to make a comeback to beat the Grizzlies. It was a fantastic game, a fantastic matchup. Even Jar put up 35 points. He was great, putting up 8 assists and 4 rebounds. But he also put up 8 turnovers, which shows that this Portland team can play defence. Damian Lillard's pretty much single-handedly carried this team back into the playoffs. I am loving 
Portland at the moment. I'm really, really high on them, if, if you can't tell. Like I said, Dame is absolutely fantastic. He's... Uh, um, <laughs> He pops threes incredibly well. It seems like he can't pop a three from like um, the the, um, the three point line, but he'll take a three from the logo, just pulling up a bit like D book like that. What's it called? And I know this is going slightly off topic from what I plan to talk about, but this Phoenix team, I feel so bad that um, the Phoenix Suns didn't get back into the playoffs because Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton carried a pretty dry Phoenix team. To eight wins in the bubble, where they went undefeated in Orlando, nearly so nearly carrying them into the bubble, but um, carrying them into the playoffs. But um, it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. But I am loving, absolutely loving this Phoenix team. Devin Booker is without a doubt one of the best players in the league. He averaged thirty point five points in the bubble. That's great. And I know I've said bubble so many times, and it's it's um, annoying me now, and it's definitely annoying you. But um, I am very very high on this Phoenix team. DeAndre Ayton, yeah, he's he's playing very very good, and um, I'm loving D Book. I really am loving Devin Booker at the second um, at this moment in time. He's playing like an MVP. This is what great players do. There are good players who can take their team places, but the greats elevate their team to the next level, and Dame, D-Book, they are doing that. They are taking their respective Phoenix Suns and Portland Trailblazers and elevating them to the next level. I reckon Phoenix could be up for a playoff run next year if they play like they do in Orlando. It's fantastic. Maybe it's just the Disney charm. I don't know. Um, I've never been to Orlando Disney. I'd love to go someday, but um, I don't know if it's the Disney biz because um, it hasn't been working so well for the Lakers. But maybe this whole Disney lifestyle um, works on these younger teams. I don't know if they've still got that magic of Mickey Mouse in their veins. Who actually knows? You know, um, it's just quite a crazy bubble. I really, really liked what the NBA did. You take all the most competitive teams put them in one place where they play on the same court there's no real pressures to perform because you don't feel like you're performing um the virtual fans were great we even had Shaq at a few games we had a goat in one like an actual goat was put in front of a camera that was hilarious and um the the nba did a fantastic job with this bubble you know, um, it really puts gives you eyes to have a look at these teams because Phoenix went a bit unnoticed. There was so much hype coming into New Orleans because um, they're quite New Orleans is quite a small market because it's such a big football team. But um, um, because of Zion, they've got new sports, and it really shows that um, uh, New Orleans aren't that fantastic. They're a good team again, good, not great, and. Um, I really like what they've done. That's all I can say. They've done a fantastic job at handling the pressures. Because it's such a hard thing to pull off. Letting everyone back into the bubble. Um, without any cases. And a few people filtering and out. It's crazy. And in a second. I'm going to be taking my picks for each playoff game. I know you're going to love it. So stick around after a very, very short break. After a short break, I am back, and I am booming to talk to you about the NBA playoffs. 
I I love the NBA playoffs. They're probably the most exciting time of the year for um, NBA fans. It's it's fantastic to watch because pretty much everything that happened in the regular season goes out of the window. Um, by the time you get to a game seven, it's not so much who's got the what or who's had the most points per game. It's all about who wants it more. Plays go out the window. Yeah, it's just who wants the chip more. And that's why I love the playoffs. It's so pure. It's just as pure as um, the NFL, MLB. It's uh, it's fantastic. Obviously, the NBA has series and the NFL doesn't. But um, it's an exciting, exciting time. So, with my picks, I'm going to run you through um, all the matchups. Um, ones that uh, peel my eyelids. That's not the phrase. Um, take... Um, I don't know, appeal to me the most, not peel my eyelids. I'm, I'm going to keep that in. I'm not going to cut that out. I quite like <laughs> peel my eyelids. But anyway, um, I'm going to start with matchups that I think could be quite interesting, and then um, I'll give my picks for each. So we've got Houston versus OKC. Um, this is quite an exciting matchup because Houston, they traded Clint Capella. You know, they don't have a center. It's quite an exciting team. They've got great scorers. Uh, so Russell Westbrook, James Harden. Uh, we've got Denver versus Utah. Um, the Clippers versus Dallas. And Los Angeles Lakers versus Portland. That's in the West. Moving on to the East. The uh, Milwaukee Bucks versus the Orlando Magic. Um, the Indianapolis Pacers versus the Miami Heat. Uh, the Boston Celtics versus the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, with no Ben Simmons, the Philly don't have any Ben don't have Ben Simmons. He tore something in his knee and had to have surgery. Um, best wishes to him. Let's hope he has a speedy recovery. Um, then we have finally Toronto versus Brooklyn. I'm going to start my picks in the East because I think that these won't be too controversial. But it's the West where things get interesting. And so we start Milwaukee versus Orlando. Pretty simple. Milwaukee are going to sweep them. I don't even think um, Giannis will have to do too much. Chris Middleton and Bledsoe will take care of that. You know, Orlando aren't an incredible team. They've got a few good guys, but no. Orlando aren't <laughs> primed to go into the semis. Um, Indy versus Miami, quite an interesting one. I look at the Pacers. They're not so stacked. They've got a few good plays, but no, I don't think Pacers could be that dangerous I'm going with Miami to take this game in five I think that Indianapolis will take a game from them I don't uh, Indiana sorry um, I think the Indiana will take a game from Miami but um, they won't infringe them too much it'll be a fairly easy um, fairly easy matchup for the heat Boston versus Philly this is where things get more interesting Boston are a really good team maybe not the record that uh, team of that caliber should be, but they they are a good team. Philly don't have Ben Simmons. Tobias Harris is good, not incredible. Um, Al Horford's not that brilliant. He's not too. Oh, I don't know what to say there. He's not as good as he was when he was with Boston. Um, and Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid is a fantastic player. He signed with Under Armour. I'm pretty sure he's got his own um, signature shoe. I might even look into getting that because it looks sweet. But um, yeah, I don't think he'll. I don't think he can carry Boston. There's no one else that could really take him <laughs> to the next step. But yeah, 
it's it's going to be really really tough for Philly to come away with the series. But I still think that Boston will win this game. Will win the series in six. It's not going to be a sweep. Philly are going to give them a run for their money. Um, but Boston are going to take it without a doubt. There's um, there's going to be a few close games. There's going to be yeah, um, Philly going to take a couple games from them. But no, there's no chance. Um, in the world that um, Boston <laughs> loses series. So now we move on to the two seed versus the seven seed. Toronto versus the Brooklyn Nets. If the Nets had their max contract Kyrie and their max contract KD, I would probably give Brooklyn a shout here, but no. Toronto are going to sweep Brooklyn without a doubt. Um, and to yet to win 4-0, um, take away the series from Brooklyn. Uh, Toronto plays some beautiful basketball. They play great defence. Siakam's really good. They pass beautifully. They don't take stupid shots. They're good. They're a very, very crisp and pristine team. I absolutely love this Toronto team. I really do. They didn't just win the championship with Kawhi. Kawhi obviously played like a beast, but he didn't just win the win them the championship. Come on, LeBron said it himself. It wasn't just Kawhi. They're a fantastic, fantastic team. But now this is where things get interesting. We move on to the Western Conference. And I'll see you after a very, very short break. Well, I'll have my picks for that. I'll see you in a second. After a short break, I am back. And I am booming to talk to you about the Western Conference first round of the playoffs. I'm so excited for this. The, the East looks enticing, but the West... The West, the West, the West looks absolutely incredible. And so to start, I'm going to start talking about Houston versus OKC. This is going to be quite a confusing matchup because Russell Westbrook used to play for OKC. He won um, MVP with them. He had um, three years in a row with averaging triple-doubles, which is an NBA record. He's fantastic. And at point guard, which is even um, crazier. But... Um, Russell Westbrook cannot carry Houston when they've got James Harden. The Houston have no centre. OKC have um, Stephen Adams. They have Shea. They have Dennis Schroeder. They have CP3. OKC are a real team. They had a 0.2% chance of getting into the playoffs after they traded Paul George and Russell Westbrook. Now they're in the playoffs at the fifth seed. And they are exciting. They are fast-paced, a high-tempo. I really like Chris Paul in this matchup against his old team, probably a revenge sort of game. But even so, I'm going to take Houston to win it in six. Um, OKC are going to give them a real run for their money, but um, Houston are going to get away with the win on this one, most likely, just because they've still got James Harden. James Harden, if he hits playoff Harden, you know, like he has before, He's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a really, really exciting time. Then, um, well, let's see what Chris Paul can do, though. Um, whether they can live and die by their three. I'm going to move on to Denver versus Utah. This is quite an exciting matchup. Um, 
I don't really know what's going to happen here. Um, you know, we've got guys like Jamal Murray um, for Denver, Nikola Jokic. Um, Utah, I've got guys like uh, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. It's a really, really exciting matchup. Like, I think it's going to come down to what can the Stars do? And in my opinion, Donovan Mitchell and Nikola Jokic are probably better <laughs> than Jamal Murray and Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is a great defensive player, but Nikola Jokic is a good defender and a great attacker. He has, he's averaged 30 points in Orlando. The Disney magic, I'm telling you, it works. But um, it worked on guys like TJ Warren, also averaging those sort of crazy numbers. But no, I really do. I really am picking um, Utah to win the series in seven. I think it's going to be a tough series, hard fought. But um, yeah, I I I I I can't look past Donovan Mitchell. I am um, I quite like his. I really like his shoes as well. Um, they are beautiful. I have to say, I'm looking at the green ones. I re- I do really like them. Um, what's it called? Then we move on to Clippers versus Dallas. Um, for those that don't know, I, d- I talked in an episode earlier about how the Clippers are my team to beat in the NBA. I think they are primed for a championship. But, 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 Dallas are a great team. Kristaps Porzingis. Kristaps Porzingis. Luka Doncic. This is a fantastic, fantastic team. They're well coached. So the Clippers, Doc Rivers is a great coach. But yeah, I'm going to go with something quite unpredictable. I'm taking the Clippers to sweep them. If Paul George and Kawhi Leonard hit playoff Paul George and playoff Kawhi Leonard, they are without a doubt the best team in the league. No one can challenge them. Patrick Beverly is going to be a great defender. Lou Will is probably going to be a great scorer for them. He's a great, great six man. Um... I'm not looking past this Clippers team. I think that this Clippers team will sweep Dallas with Luka. And uh, Chris Dubs was thinking, they're a fantastic team, the Clippers. Um, I, in my opinion, personal opinion, they're way better than the Lakers as a team. Um, they just don't seem to have bad days. Draw Kawhi doesn't play very often and they're doing a lot of load management. But um, the playoffs, load management doesn't matter. From the very start, Clippers knew they had a good enough team to make it to the playoffs. They don't even need to play Paul George and Kawhi. Keep them in fitness, but you don't have to play them very often. Make sure they don't get injured. Obviously, they did it a couple times, but... um, They are ready for a ring. The Clippers are going to win the um, weird playoff bubble. It's going to be peculiar. It's going to be long. But I think the Clippers are going to sweep Dallas... They're not going to sweep um, Utah when they play them in the next round. That's good, probably going to be another tough matchup. But I am loving this Clippers team. And now we move on to probably the most controversial pick of this entire um, <laughs> pick round of picks. The Western Conference. The 1 seed versus the 8 seed. LA versus the 35 and 39 Portland Trail Blazers. I'm picking the Blazers to win it in 7. The Lakers aren't bad, aren't that good. To be quite frank, <clears throat> they suck. They absolutely suck. I, I, they've been abysmal, absolutely abysmal. LeBron hasn't played that well scoring. He's not even on the top ten for scoring. He hasn't been that good at passing. He's hardly played. Um, obviously that's not 
best. He's played really good defensively. Sure, he had that game winner versus the Clippers. But throughout that entire game, the Lakers were bad. It was just LeBron and AD that kept him in it. And AD hasn't been the beast mode AD. AD's been a bad version of Anthony Davis. He's been like that um, mediocre Anthony Davis. He forgets that he's a god sometimes. And he has eight-point games, like shooting like 20% from the field. Awful. Just awful. Who else is going to take up the reins when LeBron and AD um, aren't on their best day? Kyle Kuzma? Alex Caruso? J.R. Smith? Oh, get over yourself. There's no chance. There's no chance that the Lakers get past this round. Damian Lillard is playing like the best player in the league. CJ McCollum, without a doubt, the best number two, like the best wingman. And Yusef Nurkic, on his day, can outplay a guy like JaVale McGee. Portland are going to win this series, and nobody, and I mean nobody, can sway me otherwise. Portland are a fantastic team. Obviously, they're not going to sweep um, LA. They can't sweep LA. They're that, they are a good team. But they're going to take him to seven. They're going to give him a serious, serious run for their money. If Lillard keeps playing like 60-point Lillard, he's going to be the beast. And if they ha- they ha- they're they going to have to double-team Lillard. But if you double-team Lillard, you leave a guy like CJ open. If you, leave CJ- if you don't leave CJ open, you leave other guys that can get it done for Portland. Portland can win this series. I don't think they can win the championship. But, um... They have a good chance of beating um, Houston after this. Have a good chance of getting to the conference finals for the West, where the Clippers all, without a doubt, beat them. But um, it's going to be so exciting. In fact, when this next epi- when the next episode that um, I include about the playoffs comes out, we'll know whether I've been right or wrong. And um, I'll probably do a little series about that where I was right and wrong, but I'm going to change the name to something probably silly. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't really know yet, but this playoffs has turned out to be incredible. It's going to be so exciting to watch. So many tight games. So much is contested now that Golden State aren't aren't that good. Well, because of injuries and that, they're still a great team. Well, you know, um, they've got a great great head coach in you know, Steve Kerr. They're a fantastic team at the three as well. But um, when Clay comes back, when they draft whoever they draft. Um, they are going to be championship contenders again, which could be boring, but let's love it while it lasts, you know, let's let's absolutely adore this playoffs, watch it pan out, and watch Portland take down LA in seven games, it's going to be such, such an exciting series, and that concludes a little bit about the playoffs, so I'll see you back in just a second to talk about the Criterium du Dauphiné, I'll see you soon. After a break. After a short break, I am back and I am booming. To talk to you about probably the most exciting Dauphiné I've ever watched. Not an understatement, not really an understatement at all. It was really good. They took all the flat stages out. The Dauphiné is normally an eight stage um, day race. But, 8 stage day race? 8 day stage race. But, um, yeah, it's, it was a lot of fun. They took out all those flat stages, which meant it was all climbs, which meant um, GC guys were straight on it. 
we immediately saw who had the legs and who didn't and uh, for those that know me personally will know I am a giant Chris Froome fan, some say I even look a little bit like him. Thankfully I don't look like him riding on a bike because he has quite an unnatural position. I'd like to think I'd compare myself a bit more to Simon Yates sort of riding style. I'm not as good as Simon Yates obviously, I just ride a little bit like him. But um, it was a, it was a very very bad race for Froome. But that's okay, Every, uh, people are acting like it's a huge deal. Now, I'm going to use my dad as a comparison for this, um, he's a cycling fan, and um, we were watching this, and he didn't really think well of, for example, Froome and uh, Garrett Thomas, um, they both finished like about an hour down, I think Garrett Thomas finished in 39th place, Chris Froome I think was like 53rd, I think, that's just a guess, I'm not 100% sure, don't take me accountable, but... Um, yeah, it really wasn't a great race for Froome. He finished five minutes down on the first stage, like 20 down on the second. But for me, that's okay. That's that's really okay. You see, he has six months less racing than everyone else. I'm pretty sure Garant Thomas had a child during lockdown. Um, so he couldn't really get out that much. And for the minute, for them, it's just priming themselves for the Tour. I think Froome will most likely be picked for the Tour de France. Personally, I wouldn't pick him, but if he hits form, he can be the best domestique on the planet. And speaking of that, I'll talk about another domestique in just a second. But, um, yeah, Froome and Thomas both finished just under about an hour down. I think Froome finished an hour and ten minutes down. But, um, yep, they did well um, on day two. I think it was to keep um, with Banal and work as his domestique. D um, Banal actually had to drop out of the Dauphiné after being the um, Young Riders jersey leader for um, three days, I think. Um, but he had to drop out due to severe back... Well, not very severe, just back pain. He can still ride, but rather be safe than sorry, just in case it is something. But um, So Ineos didn't really have any purpose, so there's no point Thomas and Froome ripping into their legs, um, killing their form by trying to keep up with people that's fast too fast for them when they'd rather just get themselves back into Tour de France shape so they can race a Tour. G's already confirmed for the Tour. Um, he can be a great domestique for Banal. Banal is the leader, without a doubt. He looked fantastic. He looked really good. Like on his bike, he, um, he really seemed like a Tour winning Banal. I, I have to say I'm quite a fan of Banal at the minute, he's doing absolutely fantastically and deserves all the support he can get, he's one of the best riders out there. But um, speaking of domestiques, I've had my eye on Sepkus for two or three years now because since I saw him race, because he's always been a domestique, I've always thought, this kid's got a bit of talent you know, you know um, the American rider from North Carolina I'm going to say, or North California. I look. I'm not from America. I don't know my geography in America, but um, yeah, he's been fantastic. One of the best climbers since stage 15 of the Vuelta last year when he won. Um, I remember he was a good showman then when he won that stage. He won it from another long range attack. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, he uh, was fantastic, high fiving all the fans on his way up, and then celebrating exhausted he was absolutely fantastic in the Vuelta last year and since then I've had my a real eye on him and in fact 
I'm going to pause myself there. I'm going to have a short break and I'm going to give you a rundown on each of the stages. So I'll see you in just a second. After a short break, I am back. And I am booming to talk to you about stage one of the Criterium de Dauphiné. To, call it, to put it short, it wasn't the most interesting of stages, but um, on one of the climbs up towards the finishing line, uh, Quintin Pache had a fantastic attack, but it was a wet road, and he made a critical mistake that you can't be making it as a professional cyclist. In the wet, you never go across a white line um, while turning, not unless your wheel is hitting it head on. You never got across a white line. You already know you're slipping off. Froome did it in 2016, really banged himself up. It happens a lot in professional cycling. These white lines are a killer. And frankly, the UCI really needs to be doing a better job with their descending. I'll talk about that in a second, like on the thing stage four. They had an awful descent, which I didn't see it because TV coverage wasn't on. But um, a horrible, horrible descent, as I say. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really really tough tough day one. It, like someone says, I think it was um, I think it might have been Knox, um, James Knox, uh, a quick step. Um, I think it was him who said uh, it's been raced like five one day races, which normally the Dauphiné is quite a sort of slightly more laid back preview of the tour, but. Because there's been so little racing, it's a level playing field, and climbing groups have been big, like so big, because there hasn't been a 100% dominant favourite like there used to be in the sky days of Froome, um, it's been really, really interesting to watch. But anyway, day one, you would never guess it, Jumbo Visma, the best team in the world at this moment of time, win with, now has been confirmed, probably the best rider of the year. Wout van Aert, absolutely fantastic. He won the green jersey here at the Criterium this year. Um, he won it fantastically. I haven't got commentary to that last kilometre. I'd love to, but I haven't got it to um, give to you an audio file of it. Um, I'll see what I can do for the Tour de France commentary, because that should be fun. But um, <clears throat> it's been re- he was really, really good. But what I want to talk about is Daryl Limpy. Daryl Limpy always does well at the Dauphiné. Why? Who really knows? But uh, he had a long sprint, around four riders to come up and nearly pip Wout van Aert of the stage. But no, Wout van Aert held on to win uphill. Uphill. Normally that'd be the kind of stage that you'd pip, uh, pick Sagan for. But Sagan just isn't himself at the minute. But that concludes a maybe less interesting day one. I don't want to go that far because it was still a good day's racing. You can take whatever you get now. But um, not as interesting as day two. And I'll see you in just a second with day two. So, day two was probably the hardest day of climbing. No, actually, I reckon it was day three or four that was um, slightly harder. But it was a very, very hard day of racing. With um, Clive's, like, I think it was the Col de Port. Uh, I don't think they raced the Madeleine that day. Primoz Roglic, last year's Vuelta winner, nearly won the Giro d'Italia, but Richard Carapaz, he now rides for Ineos, um, won that race from him. I really, I picked Primoz to win that race beforehand. I really like that Primoz is showing his emotions now, because before he seemed a bit like 
not vacant, but he just, just seemed emotionless. Void of all emotions or human life. He just kind of felt like cycling was his jam. Um, he didn't really do anything else. You know, he I'm pretty sure he used to be a ski jumper. And then he transitioned into a professional cyclist. And as of right now, one of the best GC riders. But he wins day two. He takes the leader's jersey from his teammate, Wout van Aert, who had done some uh, domestic work earlier on in the stage. Something you don't see quite often from... Um, race leaders but you know we like Bradley Wiggins in uh, the 2012 Tour de France when he um, led out Mark Cavendish on the Champs-Élysées leaders jerseys can still work too you know it's fantastic but um, yeah Primoz Roglic won the stage very convincingly with a fantastic attack after guys like Bernal um, were attacking it was a big climbers group after Ineos took the lead I, I was quite surprised by how big of a group it was um Normally, you only see uh, a couple riders at that kind of point, but um, yeah, he took it commandingly. There's not much else I can say. He won by a very, very big distance and showed why he could be the best GC rider for the tour. But as you'll find out in just a couple minutes after day four, there'll be a surprise. I'll see you in a second. So. Day three was exciting. <laughs> the winner, uh, Davide Formolo, won a solo breakaway pretty much. He was with a few riders before, but um, he managed to get away, hung on <laughs> for just an incredible win. It's uh, There's nothing else I can say. It was fantastic the way that um, Davide Formolo raced on, held the lead. You know, he kept that lead within himself kept um, towards the race and he won the stage not much else I can say um, you saw the pace of the peloton compared though Jumbo Visma got too excitable and then tried to hunt him down for the stage which I don't see the point of there's no point wasting any energy resources just just chillax a little bit do what you do in the tour and um, let Formula win the stage it was a bit too much of a gap to close Again, riders like Sepp Kuss did great, and Stephen Kreuzweich. More than yeah, well, Steve Kreuzweich, um, Robert Hazink. They're good enough to win Grand Tours on their own day. Maybe not Hazink, but um, they're good enough to win Grand Tours on their own, and then um, trying to bring him back. But uh, no, it wasn't to be. Primoz Roglic came second, taking a was it six second time bonus, and Thibaut Pino a four second time bonus. Not much else I can say about day three. Pretty boring stage. It was it was interesting. It was a great win, but again, nothing much really happened GC wise except Froome was dropped, Tamas was dropped. You know the regular culprits now. Um, and also, I don't believe I, haven't, I can't believe I haven't talked about this yet. Uh, Julien Martin who rides for Cofidis. I've had my eye on him since he was at Wanty Group Gobert, but um, he's been fantastic this Dauphiné. Absolutely great. He um, even. I can't remember if he came fourth or he podiumed, I'm not sure. Um, he was absolutely fantastic for um, Cofidis. We're going from an awful team like Wanty Group Gobert to a maybe not so great team of uh, Cofidis. And now I've got Elia Viviani though, um, so that's a step up. But um, he's been racing very well, climbing with the best of them. The very best, actually. Um, 
He's been doing a very supreme job, hanging on. He hasn't been very aggressive, a bit like Emmanuel Bugman, who came fourth at last year's Tour de France. He's just, he sits in the wheels and then attacks if he has to. He's a fantastic rider that I'm keeping my eye on for the Tour de France. Well, I suppose now I'll bring you day four. I'll be back in a second. So, day four was won by the break. Um, you love to see it. And by... An incredible first professional win from the 23-year-old Leonard Kemner from Belgium, riding for Hansgrohe, or Hansgrohe. Um, again, not much else I can say, really. He had a fantastic ride, attacking from great, great riders like Julien Alaphilippe in the breakaway. There was a few star, star climbers in that breakaway that Leonard Kemner managed to hold on to beat. He was nothing short of brilliant. Um, 23 years old and beating riders like Roglic to the top of a mountain. That is that is fantastic. Obviously, he was a few minutes ahead. But um, it was an absolutely fantastic race. Again, you know, there's not much I can say, but it was exciting. However, however... The main limelight of the day wasn't the fantastic ride from Leonard Kemner, who, have, oh, again, I've had my eye on him for a couple of years. Maybe it's becoming a thing that I can spot talent. Who knows? Uh, maybe that could be a future career if this doesn't pan out. But who knows? Um, but there was a horrible crash. On the descent of the first climb, um, right, the, in fact, Thibaut Pinel said the day afterwards that um, FDJ had um, reconned it, reconned the descent, but they assumed that it would be resurfaced before the race because they did it in, I think, December uh, in preparation because I think it's going to be Tour de France stage. Um, he thought it was going to be relayed, uh, resurfaced, and it wasn't. I, Of course, no one's really seen the descent because it, there was no TV coverage. Um... But apparently it was gravelly, full of potholes, narrow roads. Try and fit a whole peloton there when you've got FDJ steaming at the front. It's pretty much impossible. There was no way for any rider to prepare. And not to mention Roglic crashed. Kreisweit crashed. Emmanuel Bookman crashed. All of them would retire. Pretty much Roglic would retire from the race after the stage was done. He did really well to hang on. But this race has been... Um, just ridden with crashes and abandonments. It's been pretty tough. It's been a very peculiar Dauphiné, but extremely exciting. All climbing. It's been fantastic. Kemner, Kemner, Kemner. Winning from Alaphilippe, Elisande, Mihal Kvyatkoski, David de la Cruz, Jack Hay, all of those star-caliber riders. Some would say were some of the best riders in the world. Former world champions. Former Tour de France stage winners, former Vuelta stage winners, former Giro stage winners. And Leonard Kemner attacks from them all and wins in fantastic fashion after David de la Cruz took away the mountain jersey. Leonard Kemner is showing that he could be one of the best riders. And if you keep listening to the podcast, he's a guy I'm going to keep my eye on for the rest of his career, probably. I noticed stuff like this. Um, like, for example, Lilian Kalmajan had a few good... Um, good races a couple of years ago, I've had my eye on him for a while, he hasn't quite performed up to his, I think it was stage 3 of the 2017 Tour de France he won, that was a fantastic race, I, I think it must have been stage 3, won it from a breakaway, he was cramping up the second to last climb I think, um, how I'm remembering that I have no idea, <laughs> but um, yeah, day 4 was an exciting day, um, 
again, again, again. Uh, Agan Banal hadn't started, but again, again. Uh, Sepp Kuss did an incredible job at the front, being probably the best domestique in the race. He's been riding like Richie Port did for Sky, just fantastic. Um, but yeah, um, Egan Banal had to stop with the back problem before it started. Um, guys like Thomas de Gent were trying to get into a break, and Leonard Kemner gets in there. It was, it was a very, very exciting stage. It was a really good. However, ridden with all sorts of um, drama, really, from the UCI. In fact, Geraint Thomas even came out afterwards and said, the UCI needs to get their act together. And to be quite frank, he's, he's sort of right. They can't be allowing riders like this to ride on roads, that are on, especially if it's a wet day, on um, resurfaced descent. That's not safe. On um, unsurfaced roads, gravelly. Obviously, it's different for a race like Strada Bianchi, but... These are robots, they can't prepare for it. They can't really do anything about it. They don't expect it. It's hard to do recon just for a random stage of the Dauphin. It's 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 not fair to put these riders through that. It just it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't sit well. And I'll be back in just a second with day five. So stage five to conclude the fantastic criterium de Dauphine. It was an exciting race. Primoz Roglic um, retired before the race. He abandoned. Uh, couldn't couldn't get on the bike. It was horrible. It was an exciting stage. It was a very very exciting stage. Um, this one, uh, obviously, there's they don't ride. They don't um, have a leader's jersey on the day where the leader after the leader abandons. But um, which left it pretty much all open. Thibaut Pino was next in line after Danny Martinez. Uh, no, Danny Martinez was after Pino, sorry. Um, Sepkus instantly became that leader of Jumbo Visma, and he was incredible. 25 years old is Sepkus. 25 years old. That is great. He wins. The, he won the stage by 27 seconds to Danny Martinez. I think Sepkus um, attacked with 8 kilometers to go. Um, a kind of similar to his welter stage 15. He attacked with um, maybe more long distance. Um, he kept it going and won the stage from 27 seconds to the eventual winner of the overall Dauphiné, Danny Martinez, who won it in quite a quiet fashion. Thibaut Pino really disappointed me. Um, I hate to be such a hater on him but Pino was sluggish he, he just he has no sort of concept of pacing himself he does these silly attacks to try and catch up and then when he can't he gets he gets caught up and then he realizes someone's caught him and he just does these silly attacks he doesn't know how to conserve energy whereas a guy like Tom Tomullen rides solely to power like a time trialist which because that's what he is he's a great great time trialist and it works. It's powerful. It works. He can he can do this. I'm telling you, Tom Dumoulin could be a fantastic rider to watch in the Tour de France. But Sepkus um, has a great riding style, very efficient. <clears throat> he doesn't ride like Pino. I mean, no one rides like Pino. He doesn't really look like a cyclist. He looks huge on the bike. He he has a weird riding style, but he somehow gets it to work. Like on his day, Pino can be the best climber in the world like he showed in the 2019 Tour de France um, before his unfortunate injury but um, Pino really disappointed me he had the chance to win a Dauphiné and really prime himself for the Tour 
but uh, instead he finishes another 30 seconds down, 35 seconds down on Danny Martinez, um, the Colombian national champ, I think he is, for um, EF Education First Pro Cycling Team. And then with Tadej Pogacar just coming in just three seconds after Danny Martinez, he was fantastic. With Pavel, Siv- speaking of that, Pavel Sivakov in a break with Julian Alaphilippe, trying to follow Julian Alaphilippe. Um, try- no one could try and follow Julian Alaphilippe. Um, he trying to follow a guy like Julian Alaphilippe crashes out um, down the descent, hits his head so hard on the ground and then somehow gets back on his bike and carries on and not only does he carry on he catches up with the group um, and he attacks that's fantastic that is incredible um, for anyone that hasn't seen it I would definitely recommend searching up Pavel Sivakov um, and crash into YouTube and you'll see a fantastic well it wasn't a fantastic crash it was a horrible crash again Young riders and white lines, it's it's dangerous, but um, um, he crashes, loosen the back wheel after he stepped on the front brake too hard, trying to follow Alaphilippe. Um, he crashes, hits his back and head so hard, gets back on a bike, and proceeds to finish top 10 on the stage, I'm pretty sure. It's fantastic, but that will conclude the rundown of the Dauphiné. Now I'll read you the general, general classification. Danny Martinez wins with a time of 21 hours, 44 minutes and 58 seconds. Pino was 29 seconds behind. Julian Matin finished third with 41 seconds behind. Like I said, fantastic. Fourth, Tadej Pogacar, great rider in the Vuelta last year. He's three, I think three stage wins and a white jersey. Miguel Angel Lopez finished a minute 38 down. Bardet finally putting in a decent performance uh, in, at six. Dom, Tom Tomlin at seven. He wrote mo- um, Road many to uh, GC, uh, not GC. Sorry, um, <laughs> I can't remember the phrase now. Uh, domestique. There we are. Road many to domestique uh, wasn't really riding for GC actually. Uh, Leonard Kemner won it with a couple of fantastic stages at the end. Bargy was being dropped. Sepp Kuss, if he was he'd been riding for himself, could have podiumed. And that will conclude the Dauphiné, and I'll be back in a second with my picks for each jersey and my outside of my dream team. So I will be back in just a second for all the more on the tour. I'll see you in a second. After a short break, I am back, and I am booming. To give you my picks for each jersey, the outsider for the tour, and my dream team for this Tour de France. Now, um, I've just got myself a drink because my throat got very dry after doing five stages back to back. But um, it's exciting, that's all I'm going to say. This Tour de France is fantastic. We see what unpredictable racing does for the Dauphiné. I don't think I did it justice, it was a fantastic race. Um... We really got to see that Jumbo Visma are carrying on from last year and becoming so dominant. We knew that coming in, but they really, really showed it climbing this time, rather than just setting up wins for Wout van Aert. Um, they were fantastic, but, 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 but I'm not going to stray far from the point. Um, I'm going to start with probably the most irrelevant jersey, the Combative Award, uh, who I think will win that. Now, for the competitive award, you always got a rider who's in most breaks, who's always on the front, always attacking, 
for me that's going to be Julian Alaphilippe. If he doesn't hit form, then he's going to be in the break. If not, then he's just going to be doing everything he can to win stages while also kind of being up there for GC. Because on his day, like we saw it on was it stage 14 of last year, um, I think it was when he won the time trial. He can do GC, just comes down to how his legs feel, if he burns out or not. Um, on his day, I think he could win a Giro and a Vuelta, perhaps. Whether he can win a Tour, who knows? Who really knows? But I'm taking him for my combative jersey just because, uh, or award, because that's just kind of standard. Who's the most aggressive? We already know who Alaphilippe is. So we'll go for that. Now, we'll go for the points classification. I'm not going to look much further than the man himself, Peter Sagan. I mean, I don't think he has the best fire for winning stages now. He's gotten on a bit. He already's made. He's made his millions. He's he's become famous. He's got the most. He's probably the most likable guy. He doesn't really need to win. He doesn't really need to win. He just needs to rack up all the points and maybe win one stage. That was his plan last year, and he dominated that classification. So. I'm going to look no further than Sagan. He's going to be fantastic. I reckon that could be what he does. For the polka dot jersey, this is quite hard to predict because before each tour, you never really know who is going to be... Because it's always going to be a climber who wins it, without a doubt. But you can't pick a climber that's too good because um, they're, they're going to be riding GC. They're not going to be racking up the points. You can't pick a bad climber because they'll be in the G. They'll be, they won't be in the GC. They won't even be up there. It's an awkward middle ground, and I'm for me. I'm going to go with Bardet to win it two years in a row. It's um, maybe not particularly controversial. He did win it last year, um, but that was because he tried racing GC and he sucks. He has for the past couple of years. Then he wins Polka Dot because he was aggressive on the last couple of days. But if it, if not him, a guy like Davide Formolo can um, come through, or Rafael Micah perhaps. If he, I'm pretty sure he's going to the tour. He, he's a pretty standard tour rider. He has won the polka dot jersey before in 2016 and 15. I want to say, um, yeah, I, I think the guys like them aren't really suited for GC, but they can be up there for a polka dot. Which then moves us on to what's that? The moving on to the white jersey, the white jersey, and for the white jersey, I will look no further than Egan Bernal himself. Just he's twenty, what four years old now? Twenty three years old? I'm not even sure. Twenty two? Who knows? He's that young. It doesn't even matter because he's going to be on the white jersey for another couple of years. I'm taking him. I don't think he'll win yellow, but I'm taking him to win white just because. He won it last year. He's without a doubt the best climber that's young. Maybe if Kuss can outpace him, but I don't think anyone's going to go outpace um, Bernal because Bernal's got the strength of an entire Dave Brailsford Ineos behind him, so who knows. But yeah, it's got to be Bernal. You can't look, you can't look past Egan Bernal. Who's going to look past Bernal in this kind of situation? Um, great, great climber. Aggressive, also got really um attack um I can't say it uh, tactically astute. He's a fantastic little rider. I really do have high hopes for Bernal. He's gonna win 
countless Tour de France's in his career, maybe not this year, but definitely, definitely at least four in the future. Which then brings me on to the perhaps the most important jersey, definitely the most. It's an overall jersey, the yellow jersey, the infamous yellow jersey. Now, uh, what's it called? When I was little, I think I think it must be my uncle. He got me a um, polka dot jersey, which I, I wore it until it didn't fit anymore, which is such a shame. I've got a yellow jersey somewhere. I haven't got a green jersey, but everyone wants to win this yellow jersey. If I was a professional cyclist, obviously I'm not going to be, but if I was, everyone would want to win yellow. Who cares about the rest of it? You want to win the yellow jersey. No one wakes up in the morning and says, Dad, I want to win the polka dot and finish last on GC. Who wants to be the Lantern Rouge? Everyone wants to be the yellow jersey. And a guy that hasn't won a tour, he has won a um, GC race, Primoz Roglic. Primoz Roglic is my pick for this year's yellow, which should lead on nicely to my dream, lead on nicely to my dream team. But Roglic has been fantastic, absolutely, absolutely exquisite, as I say. He's um, ridden really, really, really well. Uh, he showed me in the Criterium de Dauphiné that uh, he's got the legs climbing. He's a great time trialist. He give right. He could win the Tour de France within himself in a race like this. If G was on form and if Pino was on form, then I might pick maybe one of them. But no, Roglic is without a doubt um, the contender for number one. In my opinion, number two will most likely be um, Egan Bernal. I think that he could be second. Third place is a bit of an outside shot. Like No one really knows who um, the third place would be. However, I'm going with a very big outsider. This will link into my outsider now. I'm going with Danny Martinez. Dauphiné winner to come third. He's always well positioned. Um, he's a great attacker. Really, really good uh, descender. He's good at climbing. He can do it all. I, uh, I've got really high hopes for Danny Martinez. There's a lot of great, great Colombian talent. And I think that Colombia could dominate the tour two years in a row. Maybe even Gaviria can win a stage or two for... I think he's still with UAE. And that will lead me on to my dream team. Tour de France dream team. I kind of want to make a dream jingle for that. But seeing as I'm only doing it once, there's no point going through the hours to make a jingle for something like this. But... I'm going to make this short and sweet, seeing as this episode has probably already been well over an hour. I know this is a super-sized episode, but um, it's it's a bit long. Which will be on to pre- um, number one, my number one choice. Primoz Roglic, without a doubt. Yeah, he's my hope for the yellow jersey, as I've just explained. I won't go into too much detail, because that's, that's fairly standard. Second place, Sepp Kuss. I know I've I kept on banging on about him all right, all um, podcast long. He's fantastic. He's probably the best domestique. Um, without a doubt, the best domestique, really. Um, great, great climber. Great teammate. Can win the race himself if he if he had the support of Roglic and the rest of the team. Yeah, I think he could win that race um, on his own. But um, you want a guy like that. That's what Froome did for Wiggins, except Wiggins got too self-conscious and thought, well, he's, too, he's good. Am I, um, am I good enough? And had self-doubt. Things are straight at that Yumba Visma team. There's no controversy. If Kuss ends up being the better rider, Roglic will ride for him. But I'd be surprised seeing as Roglic is doing so well. Now, 
that was um, my main domestic. Now that I'm going to lead on to my sprinter. Caleb Ewan. Caleb Ewan won a couple stages of the tour last year. Absolutely fantastic. One of the best positions uh, on the bike I've seen from a sprinter. Reminds me a little bit of um, young Mark Cavendish. He's fantastic. And plus, now he's got the whole of Sedal behind him when he wasn't at um, Mitchelton and Scott. He didn't really have that. Ewan is fantastic. Ewan can take home stages for you. Um, he's a great teammate. You know, I'm really, really liking Caleb Ewan next year. Which leads me on to the next choice. Wow Van Art to be lead out slash time trial slash can win it himself. He's fantastic. That's all I can say. He's absolutely fantastic. Like, um, was it Steve Turnison? I can't remember uh, um, who won stage one of last year. Yeah, it must have been Steve Turnison. Um, or Dylan. I can't. No, Dylan t turns. Steve Turnison. Mike. Mike Turnison. Crikey, I was wasted 10 seconds talking about that. But um, guys like Mike Turnison for Jumbo Visma last year. Um, lead out man. Can do it himself. Ralph Van Aert can do that and more. If you need, if Ewan's not on his best day, you can let Wout Van Aert take the sprints. Um, he can also be lead-up man, and he can win you time trials. He'll be a great of service teammate. He can win those kind of one-day races that the Tour has occasionally. Um, what's it called? Which leads me on to my next pick. I know I hate to be such a Yumba Visma person. I've got to go with Tom Dumoulin to be an incredible um, climber. He's a great domestique at the moment. There's so many good domestiques that could win it all, but um, seeing as we've already got Roglic, we've already um, got Sepkos, we need another guy who knows what he has to do and do my I, th I think I talked about in another podcast why I'm a bit unsure of teams like um, Jumbo Visma because they have so many stars. After watching the Dauphiné, I'm not so sure on that. I really think that They've got it figured out, like Sky and Ineos really haven't. They've got it in their heads. Who's one, who's two, who's three, who's four, who's seven, blah, blah. They've got it there. They've got it in them, within themselves. And I really, really like that from a team. So I really want Dumoulin on our team. Which is on to my next pick. Egan Bernal, committed teammate, can be leader, fantastic. White jerseys pick easily. I'm not going to say much more about that because he's just fantastic. Sagan, um, again, not too much to be said. He can do his own work teammate-wise. He'll be a great one-day rider. He'll take home the green jersey because part of my um, my job here is to think about can I win all the jerseys. And um, which leads me on to my next pick, Froome as a domestique to be a great mountain climber um, because he on this day he can win the Tour de France as he has four times. He's fantastic, but um, in this case, he'll be a domestique. He'll be an incredible domestique, which I hate to say is a Froomey fan, but he'll be a good domestique. You know, he'll do his work, he'll do his fair share, and plus, if you need, he's more than happy to go into breakaways, and I think he could be a contender for the mountain jersey, uh, King of the Mountains polka dot, which he's on to my last rider, I've gone all climbers here, except for a couple of sprinters. Pavel Sivakov, I've really, really liked what I've seen from him. He's been absolutely insane. Absolutely insane for Ineos 
um, doing some really, really good domestique work. Again, I, ha I hate to keep saying domestique for such talented riders, but he's not ready to lead yet. You know, he's um, he's got that fire in him. He's a good teammate. He's a young, another contender for the white jersey. And I should pretty much do it, which means that I've got Roglic for um, yellow. I've got um, Froome for King of the Mountains. I've got Ewan, no, Sagan for green. Um, yeah, Bernal for white. I've pretty much got all the jerseys there. So, that should conclude this section and conclude the podcast. And I'll leave you with a goodbye message. Thank you. So, that concludes the world of sport from the as of a teenager, hosted by Daniel Middlebrook. Thank you so much for sticking around. Um, I, if you got this far, I loved, loved making this podcast. It's probably one of my favourites. Now that cycling is back, it's excellent. And plus, that should bring, um, I should probably bring my news. I'm probably not going to be talking, uh, doing the reacting to lists and such, because when I tried doing that before, it didn't feel natural. It didn't feel like it was rolling off my tongue, because, um, to let you know, I don't use a script. Um, I probably never will, just because it just feels so manual, it just feels so manufactured if I do it like that, and I kind of like it freestyle? I don't want to say freestyle, but I kind of like it like this, where I come in with a basic idea of topics, and then I expand on that. But, um, thank you so much for listening, if you have. Please do follow me on Twitter, and come back for the next episode. Um, because this has been quite a funny week for recording and where races have come uh, and events um, this should be coming out on a Tuesday I think so um, my next episode might be coming out on Friday to try and get it back into order or I might just release another one tomorrow I might just drop it like it's hot you never know but that concludes it please do follow me on Twitter and come back very soon for more sports news, sports talk, pretty much anything. Um, even if it's just a bit entertaining, have on in the background, I don't mind. Whatever suits you. Um, thank you so much for... Actually, that reminds me, 100 total plays. If you add up all my listens, 100 total plays is incredible. Thank you so much. I honestly expected no one to listen. But, um, no, it's been really, really good of you. Thank you all so much. And I'll see you so soon. Thank you for listening.